you have a Bible and want to open it, we're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, verses 13 to 18. And there are printed messages at both exits. You can get one now or later if you like. All of the printed and audio messages from the past 24 years are on the website. And um, you can access them there. And again, just an encouragement, if you haven't gone on the New Church website and set up your profile and all, we're trying to make that kind of a community sharing issue. So encourage you to do so. Um, and let's see, there was something else. Oh, I was going to mention, if you missed last week's sermon, you'll probably be a little like, what's he talking about this morning? Because that was a foundation for the next few weeks here as we are dealing with prophetic themes. And so if you walk out of here with your head spinning going, man, I don't know what he's saying, pick up last week's sermon and read it over and look up the verses and so on, and hopefully it'll give you some perspective to where we're at here. There should be a bulletin uh, outline also if you picked up a bulletin. Paul writes this in verse 13, But we don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep so that you will not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. We live in a day when many people lack hope. Those who are battling depression usually lack hope, and as you know, depression is a very prevalent emotional disorder in our day. You look around, and there's plenty of things that fuel a lack of hope. Uh, The election, Um, world conditions, including the uh, threat of Islamic terrorism, Uh, The increasing godlessness we see all around us, economic worries, uh, disappointments in life, health concerns as we grow older, the loss of loved ones, and of course, as we get older, our own approaching death. The Bible uh, encourages us, though, and wants us as believers to stand out as people of hope in this hopeless world that we live in. In Romans chapter 5, verses 3 to 5, Paul explains it this way. He says, we also exult in our tribulations. Wow, that's quite a statement. How can he do it? He says, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, 
proven character and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And that note of hope runs throughout the book of Romans. In chapter 15, verse 13, he prays, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul has already commended the Thessalonians for their steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ back in chapter 1 and verse 3. And then he added in verse 10, referring to their hope, that he had heard how they were waiting for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. That's a hope-filled verse. And then Timothy came back from his visit to Thessalonica and reported to uh, Paul that there were some in the church who were grieving because they were expecting Jesus to come back soon. And when his coming had been delayed, some of their loved ones had died. And they didn't know, did that mean that they would miss Christ's glorious coming? Uh, Did that mean that their resurrection would somehow be delayed because they died uh, before Jesus came back? And so that's the issue that Paul is specifically addressing in our text. And he's showing us that the certainty of Christ's glorious coming gives us hope and comfort in our times of grief. Now, I I hate to get involved in um, technical issues and all, but before we come to our text and look to apply it, I need to mention that our verses here, along with John 14, 1 through 3, and 1 Corinthians 15, 50 to 52, those three texts form the the basis for those who argue in favor of a pre-tribulation rapture of the church, and I went into that last week, but John MacArthur, who is one of the leading proponents of that, gives nine reasons in his commentary why he thinks from our text that the church will be raptured out, be taken out of the world before the time of the great tribulation and the second coming, but then he admits He says, no solitary text of Scripture makes the entire case for the pre-tribulation rapture. And um, what he is saying there is, you have to infer the rapture by comparing various texts with various texts and piecing it together, and then you can come up with this doctrine that Christ will come once for his church before the, the tribulation, come again, a a second, second coming, at his second coming. And um, that's his view and the view of the seminary where I was trained in Dallas. Now, I greatly respect John MacArthur as a man of God and as a Bible teacher. He is just on a plane of his own. Um, And yet, at the same time, as I tried to explain last week, I... I find it very difficult to believe that on a doctrine as major as a second, second coming, somewhere it's not just stated in the text. So we can go, yeah, there it is. 
that you have to infer it by piecing together texts. And as I said last week, that it didn't seem to be discovered until the 19th century. Um, I don't have time to go through all of MacArthur's nine reasons this morning, but I think that his reasoning uh, kind of assumes what he's trying to prove and then looks for it and finds it in the text. That's my overall take on it. And so at this point in my journey, and I may change yet again, but coming out of that at this point, I would line up more with what is called historic premillennialism, which I explained last week, namely that the church will go through the tribulation time, Christ will return at the end of that time for us, and um, establish his millennial kingdom on earth at that time. So all of that to say, in short, that I I don't think our text is teaching explicitly a pre-tribulation rapture of the church, uh, but rather Paul here is giving us hope and he's giving us comfort. uh, He's doing that through the promise of Christ's glorious coming. Now, one other thing, and I mentioned this last week, all the prophecy passages in the Bible are not given so that we can draw cool charts and put them on our wall and know everything there is to know about the future. Every prophetic text in the Bible is given for practical comfort to those who are going through trials and difficulties. And it's trying to give us hope in Christ uh, for the future. And so Paul's concern here is pastoral. He wants us to experience hope and comfort, especially when we lose loved ones as these people had done. So with that as a backdrop, I want to develop three main truths. First of all, the promise of Christ's coming is certain because Paul says he was raised from the dead and because we have his direct word for it. Uh, Notice verse 14 and the first part of verse 15. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. So uh, three things here, or two things. First of all, Uh, The promise of Christ's coming is certain because he was raised from the dead. Uh, When Paul says, if we believe, the Greek construction there could be translated as the English Standard Version does, since we believe. It's not indicating any uncertainty, um, but rather certainty. Paul uses Jesus Uh, which is the human name of our Lord, calling attention to his humanity. There's only one other time in this uh, letter that he uses that name, and that's in the verse I cited earlier, chapter 1, verse 10, which is also in connection with his resurrection. Why does he use his human name here? He's trying to show you that our faith in Christ's coming is based on the history that we have, that he was born uh, of Mary, that he lived on this earth as a man, that he died in our place for our sins, that he was raised again. And if Jesus, as some of the liberals say, was only a mythical 
figure, kind of an embellishment of some legendary great man who lived and accidentally got murdered, uh, then we have no hope. We have no hope at all. Um, But that's impossible given the fact that the apostles all spent three years with Jesus and they saw him die on the cross. They saw him after he was raised and they believed that so greatly that they all went on, most of them, to lay down their lives as martyrs. And that is highly unlikely you would do that if you thought, oh, the guy, you know, he was just another man, a great man, but he um, was not raised from the dead. Now, Paul's point here is Jesus' bodily return then is just as certain as his death and resurrection, which was greatly attested by many eyewitnesses. And if he died and was buried, and was raised again, then he's coming again. Now, it's interesting, Paul says here, that Jesus died, and then when he talks about the saints, he says they've fallen asleep. And while there were many ancient cultures that used sleep as a metaphor for death, I think it's significant that in the same sentence, Paul says Jesus died, and then he comes to the saints, and he doesn't say they died, he says they fell asleep asleep. They fell asleep. And what that means is Jesus bore the full wrath of the penalty for our sins. The wages of sin is death. And so because of that, death for us, the sting is gone. And so now for us, it's more like sleep. Now, that means several things. First of all, it does not imply soul sleep. Uh, The Seventh-day Adventists and a few other groups try to argue that when we die, our soul sleeps until Christ comes back. But Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.8 that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And that would not be true if we're sleeping for thousands of years in the grave. Uh, In Philippians 1.23, Paul said, I desire to depart and be with Christ, to be with Christ. And he wouldn't have said that again if there was soul sleep. Remember that Jesus told the repentant thief on the cross in Luke 23, 43, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise, Um, not thousands of years from now. Uh, When Stephen was stoned to death, he cried out in Acts seven fifty nine and 60. He said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then it says, having said this, he fell asleep. So his spirit went to be with Christ. His body uh, fell asleep. And then in verse 10 of chapter 5 in First Thessalonians here, Paul will go on to say then, whether we're awake or asleep, that is alive or dead, we will live together with him. So soul sleep is simply not biblical. A second thing we can draw from that metaphor is that it implies that death is only temporary. Uh, you all went to sleep last night. Here you are, awake today. Uh, some of you, most of you. <laughs> few of you may be questionable, but you're here. Um, just prior to raising Lazarus from the dead, Jesus explained to the disciples in John 11. He said, Our friend Lazarus 
has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. And we know he was dead four days in the tomb. Um, As far as we know, when we die, our uh, spirits will be with the Lord in a disembodied state until the resurrection. And that's hard to understand that because we're physical. But as far as we know, that's the way it will be. Some argue that we have temporary bodies in heaven, but um, that's kind of sketchy in the Bible. Uh, But at the point that Christ comes, he will raise our bodies from the tomb. Way back in Daniel, sometimes it's argued that in the Old Testament there's no doctrine of the resurrection. Well, Daniel 12, 2, the angel reveals to the prophet, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. And so it doesn't matter how we die or how long we're dead. We might um, have decayed in the ground for centuries. We may have been eaten by vultures from dying out in nature. Uh, You might die in a bomb explosion by a terrorist and your body is blown to bits. Uh, You might be cremated and your ashes are scattered at sea. So humanly speaking, there's no way to gather those ashes together again. They're all just out there somewhere in the ocean. Uh, It doesn't matter. God, through his sovereign power, will resurrect our bodies and give us new bodies uh, that are not subject to death any longer. But the instant we die, our souls will go to be with the Lord. Also, the analogy or the metaphor of sleep would indicate relief from all our bodily aches and pains and As you grow older, young people, you'll know what I mean. Uh, Things start falling apart in the old bodies. Uh, It means rest from our earthly labors. I believe that heaven is what the book of Hebrews calls our Sabbath rest for the people of God. And also, sleep is not fearful or harsh for believers. Paul said he longed to depart and be with Christ, which is much better uh, than this world of suffering. But Paul's point here in our text is our resurrection depends on Christ's resurrection. If he was raised, we'll be raised. And we are certain that he was raised. Uh, Jesus told the disciples in John 14 in the upper room, verse 19, Because I live, you will live also. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6.14, Paul said, Now God has not only raised the Lord but will also raise us up through his power. In verse 14 of our text, when Paul says um, that God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus, the literal Greek is those who have fallen asleep through Jesus. And the meaning would seem to be that that just as Jesus' death was in the hands of God, So is the death of saints in Jesus' hands. And just as God raised Jesus from the dead, so God will raise believers. Um, That is from Howard Marshall. But um, it means if, if God is sovereign over our lives, he's sovereign over our deaths. And if he's sovereign over our deaths and he was sovereign over Jesus' death, 
then just as he raised Jesus from the dead, so he will raise us. And uh, death does not separate us from him. A second thing then to note is that this promise of Christ's coming is certain because we have his direct word for it. Uh, Verse 15, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord. Now that's pointing ahead to the details Paul is going to outline about the order of Christ's coming. Uh, And yet it it applies to uh, all of our texts that this is the word of the Lord. Now the question is, well, where did the Lord say this? And scholars are divided. Is Paul drawing together the general teaching of Christ from his teaching that we have in Scripture? Uh, Is he referring to some saying of Christ that didn't get recorded in the Bible? And there are a couple of those recorded in the Bible later, and you can't find them in the Gospels. Uh, Perhaps he was referring to a direct revelation to one of the New Testament prophets or perhaps a direct revelation to Paul himself. Um, There are many parallels between our text and Jesus' discourse in Matthew 24 about the second coming. Uh, But there are no words there about the order that Paul unfolds here about the second coming. Um, And in 1 Corinthians 15.51, Paul calls these teachings about the second coming a mystery, and that means something that wasn't previously revealed that now has been revealed. So my inclination is to say, the Lord revealed this directly to the Apostle Paul. Somehow, maybe when he was out in the desert there in Arabia for three years, the Lord told him these things. But however we understand it, the point is, this isn't Paul's speculation where he says, well, I kind of think this, but I'm not sure. He's saying this is the direct word from God of what's going to be. And uh, that makes the promise of his coming and are being raised up with him certain. The second thing to draw from our text is then that Christ's glorious coming will reunite us with deceased loved ones in Christ. His coming will give us all new resurrection bodies, and it will bring us to be with the Lord forever. Um, I'm here looking at verses 15 to 17, where Paul says, For this we say to you, by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. That is, our loved ones who have died before us. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, And so we shall always be with the Lord. I'm going to follow uh, the outline that John Stott gives in his uh, commentary on these verses. He outlines verses 16 and 17 as the return, the resurrection, the rapture, and the reunion. First, we have the return. And that means the Lord will return in power and in great glory. There's going to be a shout a voice of an archangel, and the trumpet of God. And Leon Morris makes this observation. He says, it is very hard to fit this into a secret rapture. 
It may be from this he intends us to understand that the rapture will take place secretly and that no one except the saints themselves will know what's going on, but one would hardly gather this from his words. It is difficult to see how he could more plainly describe something that is open and public. And John, uh, Paul's words here parallel John's description of the second coming, not the rapture, but the second coming in Revelation 1.7, when he says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. And John there is referring to two Old Testament prophecies. In Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, Daniel sees one like a son of man coming on the clouds. And in Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10, the prophet says that um, Israel will look on the Messiah whom they pierced and will mourn over him. F.F. Bruce uh, notes that the Lord's coming here, he says, is described in terms associated with manifestations of the divine glory in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, clouds are often accompanying theophanies. A theophany is an Old Testament appearance of God, where in the person of Christ, the angel of the Lord, he appears to people. Um, We have to say in the description here in our text, there are supernatural phenomenon going on. Because If Christ only appeared locally over Jerusalem when he comes back, he could only be seen by people in that vicinity who looked up and saw him in in the air. But the clear implication is you can be in Australia or at the North Pole or wherever you are, and you will see him coming in the clouds. Every eye will see him. And that's supernatural. I don't know how that's going to happen. Um, But... Uh, The shout is probably a loud command from Jesus, who's commander of the Lord, the Lord of the hosts of heaven. The uh, voice of the archangel may be relaying that command to the troops. It's time. Let's go. And they rally. And then the trumpet of God is going to be loud enough to raise the dead. And uh, it's it's just going to be a pretty awesome thing when the Lord comes. It's not going to be a quiet, secret thing. This is visible to the entire earth, and uh, nobody's going to be asleep and miss it. Uh, The second thing to note is the resurrection, and that is first, our deceased loved ones in Christ are going to rise, and then we will receive our new resurrection bodies. And he doesn't refer specifically to that here, um, but that is certainly implied here. The spirits of departed saints are now with the Lord. It says here he will bring them with him when he returns. At that point, their bodies will be raised and joined to their spirits uh, while they are still in the sky. Uh, We will be caught up to meet them in the air, at which point, I take it, we will receive our resurrection bodies. And this is what's called the first resurrection in Revelation 20 and verse 5, and it is of believers. Uh, According to Revelation 20 and verse 5, the rest of the dead, meaning the unbelieving dead, 
will come to life at the end of the millennial period. Now, Paul does not specify here that Old Testament saints will be raised when Christ comes back uh, for all of us and we meet him in the air. He mentions the dead in Christ will rise. Those who hold to a pre-tribulation rapture believe that there will be a resurrection of Christians before the tribulation. Then uh, at the end of the tribulation, when Christ comes back, Old Testament saints will be raised. And then at the end of the millennium, unbelieving people will be raised. Uh, The problem is um, that in Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 and 5, and in 1 Corinthians 15, 23, it indicates that there are two resurrections, not three. So they have to kind of divide the first resurrection into two. Uh, It seems to me here the reason Paul doesn't mention the Old Testament saints is he is writing to Christians, new Christians, and they've lost their loved ones. And so he is dealing with the specific problem they had in that church and saying, don't worry, your loved ones in Christ will rise. But I think also Old Testament saints will rise then. Now, if you remember from last week, these different terms again, the amillennialists believe there's only a single resurrection And it'll take place at the second coming of Christ before the eternal state. And they base that on John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, where Jesus said, the Son Son of Man will speak and the dead will rise, some to life, some to eternal punishment. Whatever view you may happen to hold, everyone agrees on this, that both dead, deceased, and living saints when Christ comes will all receive new resurrection bodies. The evil will get bodies that will suffer forever in hell. Jesus is very clear on that. The righteous, those who have trusted Christ, will get new bodies suited for heaven. But we all will get those bodies and they won't be subject to disease or aging or death And we'll get them when Jesus comes back. Then there's the return, there's the resurrection, but thirdly, there's the rapture. And that means that we who are living will be caught up to meet the Lord and to see saints in the clouds. And the word caught up there in uh, our text, it means to snatch or to seize something by force. It's used in Acts 8.39. You remember that Philip was caught up and suddenly found himself on the uh, road to Gaza, uh, down to to the south. He witnessed to the Ethiopian eunuch. And after he had led him to Christ, the spirit caught him up and he found himself in another place. So it was some sort of a miraculous bodily snatching. Uh, Paul uses the same word when he says he was caught up to be in the third heaven where he saw things that it's not even permitted to speak. Uh, Many uh, commentators point out that this catching up of the saints to meet the Lord in the air and then returning with him to the earth parallels a Hellenistic custom where when they knew a famous or 
important dignitary was coming. The whole city would go out of the city and meet him shortly a distance away and escort him back into the city. Um, In the Lord's parable of the uh, wise and foolish virgins, uh, that happens where the wise virgins go out to meet the bridegroom who's coming, and then they accompany accompany him back to the wedding feast. Uh, The Apostle Paul in Acts, when he was uh, finally arriving in Rome, the saints in Rome heard about it, and they all came out and met Paul several miles outside of the city and then accompanied him back into the city. Uh, When Paul here includes himself and some of the Thessalonians among those who may be alive at Christ's coming, he is not, as some mistakenly uh, assert, that he was mistaken, thinking, I'm going to be alive when Jesus comes. Paul knew not to set dates for the coming of the Lord, unlike some. Um, he, he didn't know for sure. In fact, over in First Thessalonians 5.10, he indicates whether we're awake or asleep, he means whether we're alive or dead when Jesus comes. Uh, so he's unsure about it. He's just saying, if we are alive when he comes. Uh, Many years later, when he writes to Timothy, he says, the time of my departure is drawing near. And he didn't mean the rapture. He meant, I'm going to die soon. So he knew by that point in his life, Jesus isn't coming in my lifetime. Um, Now, MacArthur again, and some others who argue for the pre-tribulation rapture, one of their arguments is, there's no point in the saints being caught up to be with the Lord in the air just to immediately come back to earth. And they argue that we are caught up in order to avoid the tribulation. We go to be with Jesus in heaven for seven years, then we return at the end of that time. My response to that would be several fold. First of all, the Bible doesn't need to give us a reason. It just tells us what's going to happen. But if you want a reason, it may be a couple of things. One is we will then share in his glory because he's coming in power and glory. And so the saints who have been despised on the earth, those who have been martyred, suddenly are caught up and the world sees us in glory with Christ and realizes, whoa, uh, they're on the winning side, I'm not. That may be one reason. Another reason suggested by um, Leon Morris is that the air was often thought of as the abode of demons. You recall that Paul calls Satan the prince of the power of the air. And here, by meeting us in the air, it proves again, Jesus is victorious over all of these evil forces. So we don't know why, but it would seem to me that the rapture is just uh, an instant before we all then uh, come back with him and he sets up his eternal or his millennial kingdom. So there's the return, the resurrection, the rapture, and then fourthly, the reunion is that we will be reunited with departed believing ones and we'll all be forever with the Lord. And it will certainly be wonderful to be reunited with our loved ones who have died before us. It's going to be amazing to be able to meet the Apostle Paul and John and James and Peter and all of the saints who have preceded us in glory But the best part of the Lord's coming is not going to be meeting our loved ones or meeting the saints. 
the best part is we will be with the Lord forever. Just seeing the Lord. What a, what a marvelous thing that's going to be, face to face with Him. You know, now we all fluctuate in our awareness of the Lord's presence with us. I mean, He is present with us. He said, I will be with you always. Do you experience that every single day, that you just have a sense He's with me? I don't. kind of comes and goes. But then when we see Him face to face, we will always have that awareness of his glorious presence. We will be in his presence forever with him. What a marvelous thing. Jesus prayed for that in his upper room prayer in John 17, 24. He said, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Now, what will we be like in heaven? Well, it's comforting to me that the Apostle John, who had these great visions of heaven in Revelation, he didn't know what we're going to be like in heaven. He says that. 1 John 3, 3, 2. He says, Beloved, now we're children of God. We know that. And it has not appeared as yet what we will be. He didn't know for sure. But he says, we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we shall see him just as he is. And so I think that means the instant we hear his voice, the archangels, the trumpet, we're caught up to be with him, we will see him, we'll be instantly transformed. And, you know, that means... Some of you may have thought a second ago when I said you're going to see your deceased loved ones, you might have thought, oh, no. You know, not that difficult person that was in my family. But the good news is we'll all be sanctified. (laughs) We'll all be perfect in the Lord's presence. Uh, Will we remember all of the hurts and all of the conflicts and all of that? I don't know. Uh, Probably not. But even if we did, I think we'll go, that was minor, you know. We're all with the Lord in glory. All of that is bygones. It doesn't matter. Now we are with Jesus. And isn't it glorious to have this loved one in perfection and me free from all sin and imperfection. And uh, heaven, as Jonathan Edwards argues, will be a heaven of love. Just perfect love with no animosity, no conflict, no any of the stuff we deal with here. Now... All of this is not for speculation, but rather Paul's bottom line is that the practical value of Christ's coming is hope and comfort now in times of grief. He starts and he ends our section with practical application. Verse 13, we don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep so that you can draw up your prophecy charts. No, that's not why. So that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. And then, in case we missed it, he ends it on verse 18 saying, Therefore, comfort one another uh, with these words. When Paul says, we don't want you to be uninformed, and then he goes on and says, comfort one another with these words, he is saying this, there is great practical benefit in the word of God, in the doctrines of the Bible. You know, we tend 
by we, I mean evangelical Christianity today, tends to despise doctrine. Doctrine is the foundation for experience. And Paul here is teaching us sound doctrine about the second coming so that we will, in our experience, when we lose loved ones, not grieve excessively. I've been around Christians who suppress all tears at a time of loss. And they put on a big smile and they proclaim that it's not a time of sorrow. This is a celebration. And inside, of course, they're dying. They're they're hurting. And I don't think that's a biblical pattern. Remember that Jesus wept at Lazarus' tomb, even though he knew he was going to raise him from the dead in a few minutes. And Paul says in Romans 12, 15, weep with those who weep. And grieving is a normal thing, but Paul here is hedging it in, saying, we don't grieve as those who have no hope. We have hope in Christ. And so, yeah, we sorrow, we miss the loved ones, we grieve over them, but not like those in the world. Now, let me mention, some may be wondering, well, what about if my loved one didn't know Christ? How, how can I not grieve excessively if I know that my loved one died and is now in hell? And I admit that is a hard, hard issue, and we've had to deal with that, Marla and I. Um, I trust the Lord will judge everyone fairly and justly. And there won't be a single person who will not get exactly what that person deserves. All of God's judgments are righteous and true. And nobody's going to be able to find fault with God as we do with human judges and say, that's not fair. Um, Now, there are gradations of punishment in hell. And I think those gradations are based on the amount of light that a person rejected. If they were given a lot of light and they said, nope, they get more severe punishment than those who uh, didn't even hear about Christ in this lifetime. There's an amazing text in Matthew 11 where Jesus indicates that he knows how people would have responded had they gotten light, but they didn't get light. It'll be more tolerable for Sodom in the day of judgment than for you because if the miracles had been done in Tyre and Sidon which had done, and in Sodom that had been done with you, they would have repented. He knows that. And apparently he factors all of that in to his judgment, which is just mind-boggling. So I have to trust that he will judge fairly. And I would argue this too. To the degree that now you see the glory of Christ and how great God is, how holy he is, how righteous, how true. Your grief over departed loved ones who didn't know the Lord will be minimized. And at the instant you see Christ, it'll be cleared up completely. You'll see his glory and you'll just go, he is right, he is true, he is just, he is holy. And every problem at that point will be solved. Often, I've been at funerals uh, where unbelievers will say of the departed unbeliever, 
Uh, well, he's in a better place now. And we'll all be with him someday soon. Now, that is false hope. Because it's just wishful thinking. There's no basis for it at all. Uh, Jesus died for our sins and was raised again. That's the basis for hope right there. That's what Paul is saying here. If we know that Jesus died and was raised again, then we have hope in him. And we know that when he comes back, all of our loved ones in him will be raised We will be raised. We will be forever with him. And so comfort one another with these words. Let's pray. Dear Father, we see through a glass darkly now, but then face to face. And we struggle with grief and sorrow and confusion and all sorts of things, especially at a time of the loss of a loved one. But, Lord, thank you for the certain hope that we have in Christ because we know he was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities, that your wrath fell upon him, that he paid the full price, but that he is raised again and he's coming again. And so we would pray with John, even so, come, Lord Jesus. This world is a mess. And we need you, Lord, to straighten it out. I would ask, Lord, if there are those here who are outside of hope in Christ, that you would show them the despair that they rightly should feel. That they will feel alienated from you and your people. That they will feel hopeless. And that they will see that Jesus Christ, crucified and risen, is their only hope and flee to him. And I ask in Jesus' name, amen.